Picture this, if you will. You're working in the emergency department when a 56-year-old male with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease arrives in respiratory distress. His wife called the paramedics, who found him with an oxygen saturation of 82% on room air. They placed him on an oxygen mask and started an albuterol breathing treatment, and upon arrival, his vitals reveal a blood pressure of 150 over 90 millimeters mercury, heart rate of 110 per minute, respiratory rate of 40 breaths per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 98% on an oxygen mask turned up to the maximum flow rate. But on physical exam, he appears lethargic, arousable to verbal stimuli, but clearly confused and oriented only to person. His chest wall appears to be hyperinflated, and he's taking such shallow breaths that it's hard to tell whether or not he's actually wheezing. What initial resuscitation measures should you take? And what workup is required to more appropriately tailor your medical management? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from respiratory physiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this brick, you'll be able to 1. Define hypercapnia 2. Explain the body's compensations for hypercapnia 3. Explain the mechanisms underlying hypercapnia 4. Describe the consequences of hypercapnia 5. Describe the clinical presentation of hypercapnia and its definitive diagnosis and 6. Outline the management of hypercapnia Part 1. What is hypercapnia? The main functions of the respiratory system are to absorb atmospheric oxygen and to excrete carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. As such, the respiratory drive is stimulated by either a low partial pressure of oxygen or a high partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. But it takes a surprisingly low blood oxygen level to set off the warning bells in the respiratory centers of the brainstem, and because of that, hypercapnia more than 45 millimeters mercury carbon dioxide in the blood is generally the main driver for respiration. Hypercapnia is responsible for that drowning panicky sensation when you hold your breath for too long that eventually makes you gasp for breath again. Now, there are two main reasons we care if a patient has hypercapnia. First, carbon dioxide is converted to carbonic acid in the blood, meaning hypercapnia leads to respiratory acidosis. And severely acidemic blood usually below a pH of 7.2, disrupts the action potentials of nerves and cardiac myocytes. Patients with severe acidemia experience acute encephalopathy and are at higher risk for lethal arrhythmias. Second, if a patient can tolerate the distressing sensation of hypercapnia, it either means that something's wrong with their respiratory drive or that despite the distressing sensation of drowning, they have pulmonary disease so severe that they simply can't ventilate adequately. Now, these patients may suffer the physiologic consequences of acidemia if the degree of hypoventilation is profound enough. But the more immediate concern is that either respiratory depression or pulmonary disease severe enough to cause hypercapnia will also eventually cause hypoxemia. And as you all know, this can lead to irreversible ischemic damage, especially in the central nervous system. Part 2. How do patients with hypercapnia present? The clinical presentation of hypercapnia varies quite a bit. On the one hand, 
Patients with chronic pulmonary diseases may be totally asymptomatic, with carbon dioxide levels of 50, 60, even 70 millimeters mercury, because the kidneys are capable of metabolically compensating for chronic respiratory acidosis. Now, these patients can be said to have respiratory acidosis because their PCO2 elevation is a disease process that contributes to the generation of hydrogen ions in the blood. But they're frequently not acidemic, since the kidney's bicarbonate retention and ammonia excretion can counter the respiratory acidosis and more or less normalize the pH. Patients with acute hypercapnia, on the other hand, tend to present in three different ways. Patients who won't breathe, patients who can't breathe, and patients who can't breathe and are altered. If a patient is hypercapnic because they won't breathe, something's depressing their respiratory drive to the point where they're not receiving the normal panic-inducing stimulus to breathe that's normally caused by elevated carbon dioxide. They take inappropriately slow and shallow breaths, leading to hypercapnia and often hypoxemia as well. If a patient is hypercapnic because they can't breathe, some pulmonary disease causes them to ventilate ineffectively, despite carbon dioxide appropriately telling their brains that they need to breathe. For this reason, these patients tend to present with respiratory distress that can be quite severe. But the most severe end of this disease spectrum can be seen in the patients who can't breathe and are altered. Now this is a bad sign. It indicates that the patient has pulmonary disease leading to hypercapnia that's severe enough to make the patient severely acidemic, usually with a pH less than 7.2. And at this point, two things can happen. First, the patient's encephalopathy can rapidly deteriorate to coma, depressing the respiratory drive further and causing the respiratory acidosis to worsen. And the more acidemic the patient becomes, the more prone they become to lethal cardiac arrhythmias and shock secondary to vasodilation. All right, quick review before we move on. In what three ways do patients with acute hypercapnia most commonly present? You've got your patients who won't breathe, your patients who can't breathe, and your patients who can't breathe and are altered. Of note, patients with diseases that cause chronic hypercapnia are often completely asymptomatic. Part 3. How does the body respond to hypercapnia? As we mentioned a few times, hypercapnia is the main stimulus for the respiratory drive under physiologic conditions. Therefore, the body's most immediate way to correct hypercapnia is simply to increase the rate and depth of breathing, in other words, to increase the minute ventilation. Increased partial pressure of CO2 in the blood stimulates the central chemoreceptors in the medulla, as well as the peripheral receptors in the aortic arch and carotid arteries. These receptors then stimulate the respiratory centers in the central nervous system, leading to that drowning, panicky sensation of not being able to breathe. This causes humans to breathe faster and more deeply, resulting in increased minute ventilation, which is the volume of air cycled in and out of the lungs each minute. Increasing the minute ventilation increases the rate at which carbon dioxide is excreted from the lungs, and is the most direct, immediate way to drive the PaCO2 back towards the normal range. Now that's how the PCO2 is supposed to be corrected under normal circumstances. If a patient is encephalopathic or under the influence of CNS depressants like opioids, the central nervous system may not respond appropriately to the stimulation of the chemoreceptors. The central response to hypercapnia can also be blunted by chronically elevated carbon dioxide, as is often the case in COPD or severe obesity. And finally, 
Ventilation may be rendered ineffective despite the patient having adequate respiratory drive if they have pulmonary or cardiac disease that results in ineffective ventilation. Common mechanisms include increased dead space, impaired diffusion capacity, an obstructive pattern of breathing, or simply respiratory fatigue. In these cases, the body relies on metabolic compensation to mitigate the problems caused by hypercapnia. The main mechanism by which hypercapnia causes problems in the body is because carbon dioxide leads to the generation of hydrogen ions in the blood. CO2 reacts with water to form carbonic acid, which then dissociates into bicarbonate and hydrogen ions. The kidneys can counter this by retaining the base bicarbonate and excreting acid in the form of hydrogen ions and ammonia. And this is a good time to review an important distinction. Any patient with hypercapnia is said to have respiratory acidosis, since hypercapnia is a disease process that leads to the generation of excess hydrogen ions in the blood. But if it occurs chronically enough for renal compensation to occur, it can more or less neutralize the pH so that a patient will not necessarily be acidemic, aka a pH less than 7.35. Part 4. What are the main causes of hypercapnia? The rate of carbon dioxide generation from cellular metabolic activity occurs within a pretty constant narrow range. Therefore, the main thing that leads to a buildup of carbon dioxide is insufficient excretion of CO2 by the lungs. Now, two things have to happen in order for carbon dioxide to travel from the bloodstream to the atmosphere. First, the diffusion barrier between the pulmonary circulation and the alveoli must be extremely thin with a large surface area. Second, a person needs to breathe at a minute ventilation that keeps the alveolar carbon dioxide sufficiently low since the pressure gradient between the PCO2 in the bloodstream and the PCO2 in the alveoli is what drives the diffusion of carbon dioxide out of the bloodstream. Diseases like pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary edema can make the diffusion barrier harder to cross, and diseases like emphysema decrease the functional surface area of this diffusion barrier. Now, the challenge of crossing the diffusion barrier, though, is something that oxygen has a much harder time with than carbon dioxide. While oxygen is very poorly water-soluble and has trouble diffusing into the aqueous matrix of the body, carbon dioxide is a more polar molecule and diffuses about 20 times faster. But in severe cases, this can significantly impair the diffusion of carbon dioxide as well. The most important cause of hypercapnia, though, is when carbon dioxide can't be expelled from the alveoli and replaced by atmospheric air quickly enough. In this scenario, CO2 builds up to higher partial pressures in the alveoli, eliminating the gradient that causes CO2 to diffuse out of the bloodstream in the first place. Now, I mentioned earlier that the rate of CO2 excretion depends on the minute ventilation, but that only tells part of the story. With every inspiration, a certain volume of fresh CO2-free air from the atmosphere enters the lungs. But at the end of inspiration, a fraction of that volume ends up filling structures that don't actually participate in gas exchange, like the trachea, bronchi, and bronchioles, collectively referred to as the dead space. And with every expiration, a certain fraction of stale air that's evacuated from the alveoli remains stuck in the dead space rather than being released into the atmosphere, and is just going to get sucked back in during the next inspiration. So the rate at which carbon dioxide can be excreted from the lungs is best modeled by the alveolar minute ventilation. The number of breaths per minute times the volume that's actually cycled in and out of the alveoli with every breath. 
And the volume of air cycled in and out of the alveoli with every breath equals the tidal volume minus the volume of the dead space, the portion of the respiratory tree that doesn't actually participate in gas exchange. Therefore, hypercapnia secondary to hypoventilation can occur as a result of an abnormally low respiratory rate, an abnormally low tidal volume, or an abnormally large dead space. Very frequently, these categories overlap quite a bit. When hypercapnia is found in patients with an abnormally low respiratory rate, it's because for some reason the respiratory drive isn't being adequately stimulated by hypercapnia, and is generally accompanied by an abnormally low tidal volume as well. Like I mentioned, we commonly see this in patients who overdose on opioids and other CNS depressants. Patients who are encephalopathic for other reasons, like severe traumatic brain injuries, stroke, or metabolic encephalopathy, can also suffer from a blunted respiratory drive. And finally, patients with a long-standing respiratory disease who are prone to chronic hypercapnia also frequently suffer from a blunted respiratory response to hypercapnia. They simply become habituated to the noxious stimulus and let their kidneys compensate as best they can. Hypercapnia can also be caused primarily by low tidal volume in patients who have either normal or elevated respiratory rates. Upper and lower airway obstruction limits the tidal volume by restricting airflow. Restrictive lung diseases that decrease the compliance of the lung or chest wall make it difficult to move air as easily. Diseases like kyphoscoliosis and pulmonary fibrosis often come to mind, but the most common restrictive lung disease is nothing more complicated than severe obesity which unfortunately is becoming more and more common. Finally, weakness of the respiratory musculature due to a neuromuscular disease, severe deconditioning, or respiratory fatigue after a period of respiratory distress can lead to inadequate tidal volumes when the respiratory muscles are unable to breathe deeply enough to maintain normal CO2 levels. If the disease develops acutely or is acutely exacerbated, you'll often see these patients hyperventilating with an increased respiratory rate to try to compensate, since the respiratory drive goes into panic mode. But if the disease is chronic, as is frequently the case with COPD or severe obesity, the combination of metabolic compensation and a blunted respiratory drive means that these patients will often have a normal respiratory rate and will not appear to be in significant respiratory distress. When hypercapnia is caused by an abnormally large volume of dead space, it's usually that, in addition to the physiologic dead space of the airways, there's also pathologic dead space as well. For example, regions of the alveoli that are underperfused and can't undergo gas exchange. Bullet, capillary destruction by degenerative pulmonary processes, and hyperinflation leading to vascular compression can all increase the amount of pathologic dead space. Now, none of these are super common, but there's another important way that dead space factors into ventilation. Because the dead space stays constant, whether you increase or decrease your tidal volume, lower tidal volumes are less efficient at ventilating the alveoli, since a larger percentage of each breath simply goes towards moving air through the dead space. Unfortunately, in patients whose pathology forces them to breathe at low tidal volumes, this means that a large percentage of their respiratory effort goes towards filling the dead space. Hyperventilating may be able to partially compensate for that, but it's hard work to maintain, and sustained rapid shallow breathing often quickly leads to respiratory fatigue. All right, that was a lot. Let's review, guys. What are the three abnormal physiologic parameters that lead to inadequate alveolar ventilation? 
Inadequate alveolar ventilation can be caused by abnormally low respiratory rate, an abnormally low tidal volume, or an abnormally large volume of dead space. And all three can lead to hypercapnia. Part 5. How do we diagnose hypercapnia? The earliest symptom of hypercapnia is encephalopathy, typically starting with confusion and progressing to a depressed mental status. Because hypercapnia can predict imminent hypoxemic respiratory failure, or be fatal in and of itself, you should maintain a high index of suspicion in patients presenting either with respiratory failure or encephalopathy. In patients presenting with respiratory failure and encephalopathy, hypercapnia should be presumed until proven otherwise. Now, the gold standard test for hypercapnia is the arterial blood gas, which provides an accurate pCO2 at a point in the circulation immediately distal to where CO2 was dropped off in the lungs. But as it turns out, a venous blood gas generally provides a very good estimate of the arterial pCO2. Plus, it's much more convenient. You can use the same blood draw you use for other labs, and you avoid a painful arterial puncture. Waveform capnography, while sometimes used by paramedics to estimate the arterial pCO2, is unfortunately not reliable when a patient has pathologic dead space or abnormal pulmonary perfusion, making it an unsuitable substitute for blood gas testing in the hospital setting. Part 6. How do we manage hypercapnia? The need to emergently manage hypercapnia depends a lot on whether the hypercapnia is acute or chronic. Chronic hypercapnia generally doesn't result in acidemia due to the metabolic compensation. But if hypercapnia is discovered incidentally, it's worthwhile to identify and address the underlying cause to prevent progression of the patient's disease. Acutely hypercapnic patients should be stratified by their initial presentation. Can you remember the three ways that acutely hypercapnic patients present? These patients present as patients who won't breathe, can't breathe, and can't breathe and altered. If your patient won't breathe, the most important thing to identify is opioid overdose. Now tell me, what is the single most important physical finding that tells you a patient with CNS depression is experiencing an overdose? Pinpoint pupils, correct. Always check the pupils, and if they're severely constricted or myotic, administer naloxone immediately. If you have a strong suspicion for a benzodiazepine overdose, you can administer flumazenil, but there's a couple of problems. First, because a benzodiazepine overdose often doesn't have distinguishing features like pinpoint pupils, the only way you'll know for sure it's not some other form of CNS depression is if the patient's friend told the paramedic, I just saw Karen pop five Zanny bars, or something like that. Second, if the patient is physiologically dependent on benzodiazepines, flumazenil can send them straight into withdrawal, which is no joke and can cause seizures. If you're not sure why they won't breathe, don't waste time and just intubate them. If a patient can't breathe, the non-invasive ventilation modality BiPAP is ideal. Not only will you augment their tidal volume, allowing them to take deeper, more efficient breaths, you'll help prevent respiratory fatigue, since some of the work of breathing is being performed by the machine. Then, proceed to work up and treat the underlying cause of respiratory failure. Patients with COPD exacerbations need bronchodilators and steroids. Patients with CHF exacerbations often need diuretics and, if severely hypertensive, nitrates. And don't forget, in obese patients, positioning is super important to ease the work of breathing against their visceral fat and panis. 
If a patient can't breathe and is altered, now then you have to be a little bit careful. Altered mental status secondary to hypercapnia is a reasonable assumption, and starting non-invasive ventilation is usually a good idea. But these patients have to be monitored very carefully, because a severely obtunded or comatose patient is at risk of aspirating secretions or vomit when you seal a mask on their face. An altered patient on BiPAP needs to be watched very closely so that you can remove the mask if they're about to vomit and constantly reassess to see if the non-invasive ventilation is actually improving their mental status. If it's not, then intubation is usually required and you need to look for other reasons the patient might be altered. And that's a wrap. Here's a review to see if you learned something about hypercapnia, but I won't hold my breath. <laughs> Puns. First, what defines hypercapnia, and what is the gold standard diagnostic test used to identify it? Hypercapnia is defined as a PCO2 greater than 45 millimeters mercury, best diagnosed using an arterial blood gas. Second, what are the three main ways a patient with acute hypercapnia can present? Patients with acute hypercapnia fall into three categories. There's patients who won't breathe, meaning they have insufficient minute ventilation due to something blunting their respiratory drive. There's patients who can't breathe, meaning they present with respiratory distress due to a pulmonary disease that prevents effective ventilation. And finally, there's patients who can't breathe and are altered, meaning their pulmonary disease has caused such severe hypercapnia that they present with encephalopathy. Third, what three abnormal physiologic parameters can contribute to hypercapnia via alveolar hypoventilation? Insufficient respiratory rate, generally found in the won't-breathe patients. Insufficient tidal volume, found in most cases of hypercapnia. And an abnormally elevated dead space due to pathologically underperfused portions of the lung. It's worth noting that if a patient takes rapid shallow breaths, the same dead space is subtracted from the low tidal volumes as their high tidal volume breaths. The patients who are having rapid shallow breathing spend a larger portion of their respiratory cycle simply breathing through the dead space and are therefore ventilating inefficiently. Fourth, when should non-invasive ventilation be used to treat presumed hypercapnia and when might it be risky? The non-invasive modality BiPAP should be used in patients with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure in most cases when they're presenting with respiratory distress. It'll augment their tidal volume and decrease their work of breathing. If the patient is in respiratory distress and altered, it's reasonable to assume that they're altered because they're hypercapnic and start non-invasive ventilation empirically, but they have to be monitored closely to make sure they don't vomit and aspirate. If a patient won't breathe, then they're generally not good candidates for non-invasive ventilation. BiPAP isn't great at making them breathe faster, and the CNS depression that most of these patients have makes them poor candidates for non-invasive ventilation. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to the intro. A 56-year-old male with a history of COPD presents to the emergency department, appearing to kipnic and confuse despite normalizing his oxygen saturation with oxygen and bronchodilators. What initial resuscitation measures should you take, 
and what workup is required to more appropriately tailor your medical management. The presence of respiratory distress and confusion, especially in the context of COPD, strongly suggests the patient's encephalopathy is being caused by elevated levels of carbon dioxide in the blood. You're particularly concerned about his shallow, gasping breaths and worry that such ineffective breathing is quickly leading to respiratory fatigue. You immediately call the respiratory therapist to start non-invasive ventilation with BiPAP, adjusting the settings to provide support during inspiration, but quickly dropping the pressure low to allow him to exhale completely. You ease up on the oxygen supplementation. In patients with COPD, an oxygen saturation between 88 and 92% is perfectly sufficient. But you ask the respiratory therapist to watch him closely to make sure he doesn't aspirate, and to call you within 30 minutes if the BiPAP isn't improving his mental status. 30 minutes, two bronchodilators, and one round of steroids later, the patient appears much more alert, and you determine that his aspiration risk is low enough to where BiPAP can be continued safely. His work of breathing is markedly improved. He's now breathing at 25 breaths per minute and taking tidal volumes large enough to where you can clearly hear the wheezing upon auscultation. The arterial blood gas drawn just before the patient was placed on BiPAP confirms the patient's respiratory acidosis with a pH of 7.1 and a PCO2 of 75 millimeters mercury. And you order a repeat ABG to confirm that it's trending in the right direction. He's still slightly disoriented, however, and an x-ray revealing multifocal pneumonia with a white count of 19,000 suggests that sepsis may also play a role in the patient's encephalopathy. Infection is a common precipitating factor for COPD exacerbations, so you start antibiotic therapy and admit the patient for further treatment. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full BRICS experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 